Welcome to Win the Future, a podcast where we chat with folks who are tackling the most significant challenges our communities face today to make for a better tomorrow. I'm your host, Rep Roaster. This is episode number 20. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Win the Future. I'm your host, Rep Roaster, and I'm here today with a very special guest, the one, the only, Eric Olson who is head of Olson Consulting and also just started up a new company, Paper Trail Investigations. And Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Brett. I am looking forward to chatting with you about uh, about the work that I do. Ah, same here, same here. So Eric, we've worked together a lot on uh, political campaigns and some advocacy work as well, but you are an opposition research guru and for those who may not know what that is, can you talk a little bit about what opposition research is? Sure. What my firm does is that we are hired by Democratic candidates, uh, progressive organizations, and we analyze all of the public records and online media that, uh, that is involved with our target. Uh, we do both self-research and opposition research. Uh, that means that we spend time in courthouses reviewing court filings, property records, uh, voting records, campaign contributions, and we write massive reports that tie all of those threads together. Uh, all of it's really public information. It is not, uh, I am not a surveillance guy, um, but what we do is put all of that together. It's a bit of policy, it's a bit of uh, online research. I like to say that that I dig through the trash cans of the internet. And once we find all of that information and put it together, we advise our clients on the best ways to use that information. And then going through the course of a campaign, we will fact check everything and make sure that, uh, that everything that our clients say over the course of the campaign is factually accurate. Uh, sometimes that means going to bat against uh, the uh, opposing sides, attorneys and their opposition researchers uh, to compare our set of facts to their set of facts. Uh, but ultimately, that is that is my job is to find information, make sure that it's accurate and keep my clients out of trouble. Excellent. So, so Eric, with that in mind, in terms of operationalizing that or the mechanics, right? Uh, without giving a name or uh, or talking about a client specific, in a general context, can you talk about a little bit about how that could be used, like from the uh, information gathering piece through the polling side of things, and kind of how that how that plays out in a campaign. So opposition research usually starts early. We want to have all of our work done before polling goes into the field, before the direct mail pieces are sketched out and before the ads are recorded. Uh, we do our work, create a massive report that is is factual. Uh, we don't skew our reports one way or another. We, we play it straight down the middle. Uh, we look at potential vulnerabilities and potential strengths for both sides. And then that information informs the pollsters as they write their polling questionnaires to test negative messages, to test positive messages, to see what the strongest arguments are. So my role through that is to work with the, the pollster to make sure that all of those questions are accurate, to suggest lines of argument that we might take 
and then ultimately to serve as an advisor to the client once the polling is in to say, what are our strongest lines of attack? How can we say them in the strongest way possible? So uh, I then take that same role as we're moving through with direct mail uh, and with, with TV ads, which I think people are probably more familiar with all of the attack ads that they see on TV, uh, that <clears throat> I'm going through and, and literally every single word is verified in a a side by side document with uh, with a, a link to the primary source material or the text of a legislation or the actual record of a campaign contribution to prove the argument that we are making. Uh, so it's a very it's a detail oriented job. Uh, it takes a lot of uh, curiosity and creativity. Uh, I think that one of the the coolest parts about what I do is that every single project is different. Uh, I can go from a an auditor and CPA in one state and the morning and then in the afternoon, I am uh, reading through the text of legislation in a totally different state because the state legislator is running for Congress. Uh, it really keeps keeps us on our toes, uh, as you will, which is also why I've been doing this for so long. Uh, I've been, uh, I've been working in politics for 19 years. I've been in opposition research for 18 of those years. And, and I've owned my own firm for 12 years. And how did you get your start in opposition research? I mean, I, I would imagine there aren't a lot of folks who go to college and think, man, I can't wait like my career ambition is to go work and do opposition research. Although I think it's an, it's amazing and obviously a, a great gig and you're incredible at it, but it's just, it's not a normally a natural path, but how, how did, how did you follow that path into the, the business that you have now? So I went to the university of Kansas and we, uh, student politics there is, is very big business. Uh, there are campaign contributions, and we did uh, what's called micro-targeting, where we emphasized different messages to different audiences based on where they were living. So kids in the dorms, uh, we might talk about one specific set of issues versus uh, off-campus students versus uh, Greek students. And uh, one year we had a hard time figuring out what the opposing presidential candidate was doing. And so, uh, and so I volunteered to borrow someone's car and follow him. Uh, and it's and so i i felt i i had a bit of a knack for it i also am uh tech inclined and one of the reasons why i was so useful was at the time as an 18 year old i was one of the few people who knew how to use mail merch uh so between between my 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 tech ability and my willingness to do something totally stupid like follow another student around in a car uh I, I kind of, I had a knack for it. And then I have a very prototypical or stereotypical DC story. I moved to DC after college without a job, got a job bartending three blocks from the Capitol. Uh, and, and within about a month, I had made friends with a regular who uh, was a senior advisor to a member of Congress. And he made a phone call and got me a minimum wage job stuffing envelopes at the DCCC, uh, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Uh, and so I leveraged that to 
push my way into the research shop and help out with research during the, the tail end of the 2002 cycle. Uh, and then from there went on to work uh, in research on uh, a presidential campaign in 2003. Uh, so, and I've been doing research basically ever, ever since. Uh, I, I worked for a US Senator in 2006, and then went to work for a research firm in 2007, and then opened my own firm in late 2008. Excellent. How, how tough was it making the transition from working on campaigns, starting your own firm? What were some of the the, the road bumps, or and, and what were some of the just like the highs and the lows of, of starting being entrepreneurial in that respect? You know, I think it's the challenge that every small business owner has when you go from being an employee to running your own business. All of a sudden, you're in charge of making all of the rules of setting your own hours, making sure that you are on track to complete your your projects. Uh, you know, I didn't start out going from working on a campaign to having a big shop. And so my my job was to direct all of the research. I was doing all of the research myself and and balancing all of those um, all of those tasks. Uh, I didn't have an employee, I think, until early 2010. So it was it was a year and a half before I had had an employee at all. Uh, so I was doing it entirely on my own. So the the challenges were that really was keeping myself on task uh, and 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 being able to balance the needs of you know seven or eight clients who all wanted to have all of my attention. Uh, and since they were running for office, you know they deserved all of my attention. So it was a lot of long hours and and was challenging and stressful, but, uh, but, you know, I came through it and, and continued to do it and succeed and added employees and took on bigger races and more complicated projects. And, uh, you know, in 2012, I got my private investigators license. Uh, and so that I could do some of the things that I do for private, for, for political campaigns, also for private sector clients. And in 2019, based on my track record as a private private investigator handling uh, corporate corporate investigations, uh, I was allowed to 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 study and take the exam to become a certified fraud examiner. And so I added that to my resume two years ago now. So uh, as both a private investigator and a certified fraud examiner, I have dramatically expanded the scope of work. Uh, that I do from uh, from opposition research to corporate due diligence, competitive intelligence, uh, basically uh, do, doing doing the same set of skills, but uh, turning the turning the lens a little bit. Uh, so when a, a company will come to me when they are looking at investing in another in another company or buying out another company to uh, figure out who all the people are involved, the companies that are involved, what their track records are, where their personal histories are, so that they know whether or not it's a good investment. Um, do similar work for attorneys who will reach out when they're in litigation to find out information on opposing parties or opposing expert witnesses or their own expert witnesses to see how how their stories have changed in previous cases, how much they've been paid for expert testimony in previous cases, whether their testimony has conflicted in, in any case. Uh, this is also kind of the, the type of stuff I do. And with my, the fraud work is a lot of it is internal fraud investigation, 
or uh, in matrimonial situations where someone who believes their partner is hiding assets or hiding, hiding money uh, before going into divorce uh, in, in particular. Uh, but there are a lot of situations where someone who understands money and the flow of money through bank accounts can be really useful to people who are not politicians. I do think it also makes my, my work uh, on political campaigns even stronger, particularly in talking about when, uh, when people coming, come out of the private sector to run for office, uh, and as well as looking through campaign contributions and figuring out, following those, those money trails, especially as we deal with all of the dark money in politics uh, and figuring out, figuring out those, even if they are not directly explicit ties, figuring out those, those implicit or hinted, hinted ties uh, are kind of where, where I like to focus and where I have the, the most fun uh, when thinking about those political races. Well, Eric, I want to delve into that, but we just have to go to a quick break and we will be back with Eric Olson. Win the Future is sponsored in part by Connecticut by the Numbers. If you're looking to learn more about what's happening and why, check out Connecticut by the Numbers, where every number tells a story. Connecticut by the Numbers goes beyond the headlines across the state. For Connecticut news that counts, visit ctnumbers.news or follow them at ctnumbers. Hello, everybody, and we're back with Eric Olson, the head of Olson Consulting and a new firm, uh, paper trail investigations and Eric. So before the break, we were talking about dark money. And so I want to explore that a little bit in terms of the proliferation of super PACs and independent expenditures and how that side of things being the, the soft side campaign side, and then the hard side, which is candidate specific or pack driven too. Right. But like, can you talk a little bit about the differences in your work when it comes to both of those fronts? Sure. I think that the the dark money side and the corporate money has has made my life far far more challenging. It's far more difficult to dive into those records, but you know, the basics of what I do is to look at corporate registration statements at the state level, any federal registrations or federal uh filings with the FEC or the SEC, I'm looking for, you know, is the registered agent the same? When were the dates of formation? Who, like any name that is on the, the corporate filings, whether it's the same law firm that is representing multiple entities in their registration statements. Uh, in most cases, uh, at least there is at least some disclosure on the corporate side, whether or not who the who uh, the members or shareholders of the uh, company are. Uh, so that is one of the ways to uh, approach it. Uh, it's even harder with, uh, with nonprofit organizations. Uh, the C4s, C6s, I actually had someone try to use a C17 uh, once, which is, um, which is veteran related. Uh, and allows them to spend money directly on political campaigns. It's the only, it's the only nonprofit that allows for direct political spending is veteran organizations. And so this super shady individual set up a C-17 so that he could uh, use that money and funnel it directly into, into political campaigns. Smart. 
Wow. But it, uh, yeah, yeah, there are, there are all, all sorts of all sorts of loopholes that you can you can dig into. Uh, so the combination of nonprofit tax returns, which are all public, uh, although they're they're usually a couple of years behind. Uh, so if an organization has been around longer, it's far easier to track money all the time. And, and those nonprofit uh, those nonprofit tax returns are, are readily available on the Internet. ProPublica hosts the, the nonprofit explorer uh, service and uh, another another organization called GuideStar provides uh, copies of years back um, nonprofit nonprofit tax returns. And you can find anything out from. You can find out the amount of money they've brought in, how much money they've spent, what their assets are, do they do they own property, uh, and even their highest paid employees. All of that is disclosed on the on the tax return. So um, even if you are curious about the local organization that is that is asking you for money, uh, you can actually go and go to GuideStar or go to ProPublica and you can look up and see, you know, how much money are they actually spending on their mission versus how much money is going into their executive director's pocket. Um, a little, I guess, a little, a little research tip for you. Uh, it's also interesting if you're, if you're job hunting, it's an opportunity for you to to take a look and see what other people are being paid in the organization, or at least the, the, the top, I believe it's the top five employees plus anyone making over one hundred thousand uh, dollars has to be disclosed on the on their annual tax return on their nine ninety. So that would be that is that is one approach that is that I use to look look at these third party groups to figure out you know what they are, who is behind them, where they're spending money. So Eric, you had also mentioned kind of the people job hunting. Well, so. Throughout COVID, obviously, a lot of people have unfortunately um, uh, been, been unemployed, but uh, which which is awful, and obviously uh, hoping that that gets rectified soon. But in the midst of COVID, uh, a lot of folks um, had different job changes, and the the tra- tools of the trade differed, but. Specifically for your purposes, and earlier you had mentioned that um, going to town halls to find property records. For example, you could have a situation you need to get property records, you can't go, or you can't send somebody to go. So how how did you go about getting the information you needed without going through those um, normal channels? In a lot of cases, especially early on, uh, there was just simply no way to access those records. And I had to be really clear with my clients that there were some things that we were not going to be able to get, uh, that it was just not going to be possible. Um, but there are several runner services throughout the country uh, that I have made use of. Uh, obviously, lots and lots more records are coming online all the time. And so it's way easier than it was even you know, four years ago when I would spend probably two weeks out of every month on the road. Uh, compared to now when I maybe travel once every three or four months that that I can use uh, a runner company. Uh, LexisNexis actually has one on their own. One of the hugest data companies in the world uh, has a runner service. Uh, Westlaw has a runner service. And then there are local runner services, which I actually prefer to use. Um, they have a better handle on what records are uh, are available, where they are. Uh, and so I would contract with a local company. Um, and there's a there's actually a website that catalogs all of that. It's a subscription service called BRB Publications. And they provide detailed summaries of every uh, 
court system in the country and every clerk's office in the country uh, and even tells you so much as uh, does the information that you can access in person differ from what is available online on their online database. So there were times even when uh, when I had access online that I had to send someone in person to look at the records uh, and, and and the clients actually like that because it is it is cheaper to send a local person than it is to spend several thousand dollars for me to fly from DC to wherever I'm going to be uh, and spend a week going through those records. Um, larger projects or projects where we don't know quite what we're looking for as opposed to retrieving a specific record are those are the times when I am gonna be uh, on a plane and spending time in courthouses and clerk's offices digging through old, old dusty file folders. Interesting. So with that piece of it, being there and you starting this new business, a new venture, paper trail investigations in the midst of COVID. Can you talk a little bit about that side of things, which is more corporate versus the political? I think there are a lot of similarities. Uh, I feel like my my expertise in public records in particular, um, I had a, uh, it, was, it was not a corporate case. It was a matrimonial fraud case uh, where a, one one partner um, was there wasn't really an accusation. They they had um, moved a a property that the, that the that the couple owned together into into his own name, uh, but <clears throat> we could not find him. Could not find his location, and uh, and found a Facebook photo of him with his dog, uh, and so since vaccination records are public record. I called the county health department uh, and asked and and submitted a, a verbal request for all vaccination records associated with the owner's name, uh, and those are filed by those are filed by vets. They're not fail, filed by by the animal owner, uh, and so I had I had his current address within 15 minutes uh, because nobody lies to their vet. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> Oh, I learned that trick from uh, in a continuing ed session for to to for my my CFE uh, from another from a fairly legendary uh, private investigator named Michelle Stewart who suggested it. But then, literally three months later, I, it was the trick that I used to identify the location uh, of of someone using public records uh, on a on a matrimonial case. The corporate stuff is is really very similar. It is a combination of public records and online investigation, um, digging into information that people accidentally leave online from public Google Drives and, and folders, uh, which which can expose lots of information, social media accounts, uh, things that people accidentally posts that they don't think about that can provide insight into the work that they do and the company that they work for. Uh, and so the, the, the internet uh, in particular uh, and social media with Facebook and, and Twitter is been, makes my life so much easier than knocking on doors and interviewing people and asking them to kind of some, some ways, breach someone else's confidence uh, and and talk about them. So what's the continuing ed piece of the private investigation licensing side? What's that like? For uh, 
it, it depends on on where you are licensed. So in Oregon, they required 20 hours every two years. Uh, I lived in Oregon for eight years. Uh, and in DC, there isn't a continuing education requirement. But for uh, to maintain my certification as a fraud examiner, I have to do 20, 20 hours uh, a year. Uh, 10 of those have to be fraud investigative classes. Two of those have to be ethics hours. Uh, and so I take the classes, pay, pass exams. I've taken really, it, it's really fascinating stuff. Uh, dark web investigations, uh, criminal defense investigations. I took a seven hour uh, course on, on how to do criminal defense investigations from a, a legendary uh, criminal defense investigator named Hal Humphreys. Uh, who who runs the, I think it's PI Education and Pursuit, is the publisher of Pursuit Magazine, which is a, an industry publication. Um, so those are the types of things that, that I do to keep that certification. And I get to pick and choose, which is great. So I pick the stuff that really either is, interests me, like criminal defense investigations, which is an area that I don't have experience in, or, or areas that really focus on you know, fraud, embezzlement, public corruption, the types of work that, that I do on a kind of daily basis. Interesting. So Eric, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to get into, a, a kid who's in college and wants to get into private investigating or, or into opposition research? What would you, you tell to your younger, what would you say to your younger self? <laughs> <laughs> Go into media. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I, I wish I got a got paid a percentage of the ad buy. Um, no, I would say that 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 hone your curiosity, figure out, ask questions, take journalism classes. Uh, I think that the the best opposition researchers that that I know have some sort of journalism background, whether it was as as a course of study in college, or they worked for a year or two as a reporter, or they were involved with their student paper. Um, I, I think of what I do and how I write a report is a series of news stories with a headline and a lead and then detail um, just kind of over and over and over again. So I would encourage people to think about that, to think about an event that's happened to them or happened in their, their area and think about ways that they could find out information about that event, whether it is a, uh, you know, a, a crime that has occurred that was public, you know, can you get copies of the police reports or the 911 call tapes or the call logs? Or if it's recent, you can look at the Snapchat map, which has public stories uh, from the last 24 hours available on the web. So you can actually go and, and look at, at video from, from the actual event if there happens to be enough people. Um, it's actually, it's a very cool uh, heat map of, uh, of publicly posted videos on Snapchat over the last 24 hours that, will, that allows you to, you can zoom in or punch in GPS coordinates and, and actually get, get right into whatever event you are, you are, um, you are talking about. I think that the, the biggest example of that that I've, I've seen told by law enforcement on a number of occasions is the, the Las Vegas shooting. Um, because so many people were filming that since it was at a concert venue that they had just hours of, you know, minute or two minute long 
pieces of footage of of the actual uh, the actual um, massacre was what's happening, um, which which was horrifying. Uh, but from an investigative standpoint, uh, Snapchat's use in that um, in in that investigation was just kind of mind blowing, groundbreaking. Well, Eric, and kind of in line with your most interesting man in the world persona, you also have <laughs> one more venture, which is I do. You, you want to talk about it? Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, I, I actually have two new ventures. Really, really quick, <laughs> really quickly. I uh, I have recently uh, teamed up as an advisor with uh, an international uh, investigations firm that's just launched called J Two Risk Advisors, uh, which is run by uh, Paul and Tom Jabe out of Minneapolis. These guys are legendary investigators who have done some of the coolest, biggest cases. Uh, in the country. And so I'm teaming up with people literally from around the world to uh, work on some pretty high profile, cool, uh, cool cases. Um, but the other thing that you were actually alluding to is that uh, I also um, am in the process of getting my liquor license with my wife to start an online wine retail business and, uh, and, and wine club too. So we are dealing with local liquor laws and signing a lease on a storage location. Uh, we lived in the Willamette Valley in Portland, uh, Oregon for eight years and have a bunch of relationships there and have experienced drinking really wonderful wine that, uh, that isn't, uh, we have, you know, th there is obviously very good, very expensive wine, but there's also a lot of wine that's very good. That's not expensive. And so what we're trying to do is, uh, is provide wines that provide surprising value uh, and that kind of taste our palate, that, that hit our palates, which are pretty varied um, from around the world. So uh, that is uh, that is the the new the new adventure that we are embarking on. Nice, nice. Well, Eric, I mean, so many different realms that you're in, which is fast, fascinating and fantastic. Excellent. Well, Eric, always a pleasure catching up with you, Ed. Thanks to everybody for listening to another episode of Win the Future. Thank you for listening to the Win the Future podcast, sponsored by the strategic communications firm, A Better Campaign. Make sure to visit our website at abettercampaign.com backslash win the future. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of Win the Future.